0: sustainability of their health and their community, a lot of this will depend on whether or not they have the economic means to provide for themselves. And so when they come into our program we're, one, we're giving them the option to join a savings group and we have a partner organization who specializes in savings groups that help that's helped us create our curriculum to train them on how to operate a savings group. But then for the rest of the clients, even whether they choose a savings group or not, they are going to get 18 training seminars over the course of the program where they're going to be learning some skills of, of entrepreneurship and business where they're learning about how to manage their their finances and how to, to learn marketing and design things.
1: Justin Miller, CEO of careforaids.org. Uh, if you missed part one, please go back and learn about the centers they've got in Kenya and Eastern Africa and, and all the families they've helped with, with uh, all the program for these uh, people, especially for me, the uh, helping prevent or- orphans, um, as we talked about. But Justin, kind of continuing the conversation, we, we ended with part one on um This idea for anybody, whether it's in the for profit world you, where you're you know trying to make enough money to save a retirement or, or whatever your financial goals are for your family or whether it's the non profit world where you're trying to generate the kind of revenues um to to do the help that you want, generate the donations or grants um Can you talk about maybe a lesson you didn't expect over these last twelve years? you know you start off you're doing a couple hundred grand a year in in you know a textbook drive and reselling those textbooks, and it seems great. But, uh, you know, what, what, what was your, aren't you guys like 20 times that big now? I was trying to look at your 990. Yeah, last year we,
0: we raised about four and a half million.
1: Yeah. So you look at, you know, 22X, <laughs> right? Growing 2200%. Can you talk about a lesson that you didn't expect over that process?
0: Hmm. That's a great question. Um, a lesson I didn't expect... Or well, turn
1: of events or just something that you were sure yeah. it was this way and you discovered it was different?
0: Yeah, I think, well, first of all, uh, what we just finished talking about, and, and that was a big aha moment for me. I mean, I did not I did not understand the donor as customer mentality. Uh, that was something that really turned um, for me. And when that turned, I also under, I began to understand that I need to understand my donors on a deeper level and um, begin to... to not just look at their profile in terms of demographic and capacity to give, but really deep down, what do they, what do they value? What are the things that we can do? And so that was, uh, that was a big aha moment for me um, in this donor journey, especially
1: I'm trying to think what else really. Or, or maybe talk about a major win. I mean, in growing 2200%, you guys have had some wins along there, but what, what, what was a breakthrough? What was a major win in, you know, growing donation size so you can help more families?
0: Yeah, well, I think, and, and that's what I, one thing I would say about that. And this is maybe this is the the other aha too is that we we are a living, breathing example of kind of the the whole flywheel concept that Jim Collins talks about. We are not an overnight success. There has not been a you know a moment, an inflection point where we said, "Hey, we went from you know a million dollars to four million dollars overnight." Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a lot of what we've learned over the years, and maybe I maybe I thought going in that we could we could hockey stick this thing and we could really learn how to to grow exponentially but in our space and what we're trying to do it has been a slow consistent focused effort in the same direction over 12 years that has made all the difference Um, well well,
1: then i have a i have a different question for you there because thinking about this like line upon line you know brick by brick compound interest growth kind of thing How do you deal with burnout or how do you, how do you keep the passion alive? How do you, how do you deal with disappointment that things haven't been growing faster, anything like that?
0: Yeah, well, you know, just one of the things that's important to me is obviously my, my faith is a driving factor to me. I don't know if I could even be in this work day in and day out if that wasn't um, a core motivator for me uh, because I I draw a lot of, of my energy and, and stuff from that. But for me, thankfully, I get to I get the opportunity to be on the ground um, three or four times a year. And when I'm there, I'm in the homes of our clients. I'm, I'm with the people that we're serving. And it's easy for me to look at a number. And, and I'm so thankful that we've got an impact 17,000 lives. But it's those individual experiences for me that just remind me and giving me that Clarity of exactly what we're doing. And for me, I mean, I still have to set a lot of boundaries. I mean, I, there are times I've, I've worked 80 hour a week, but I have three kids now under five. Um, and I have to know, I have to know what I am willing to give to this organization. And uh, when I am devoted when I'm in the office or when I have a project, I am fully devoted to what Pure for AIDS is and I'm giving it my best, but I'm also willing to put it down, which I wasn't willing to do in the early days and, and, and really focus on on my family. I'm just I'm just grateful for me. I think the fact that my my passions and my skills and the work that I get to do are so closely aligned that that is one reason why I think I've been able to do this for 12 years, but I am the founder and and therefore like a lot of the, the sense of ownership that I have is unique to me. The bigger question and the one that I am still trying to answer every day is how do I make sure that the team of people that we have, which is now over 200 and you count all of our offices, how do those people Feel that same type of um, drive and intrinsic motivation. Um, They also take care of themselves and set boundaries. But how do they feel the same level of ownership that I do? Because for me, getting up and doing this work every day is still a joy to me.
1: Yeah, I I love it. You know, and I actually want to talk more about that. It's it's interesting as you were talking. We um one of our one of our companies, the Greystoke Advisors brand. We we have these experts who, you know, for thirty or forty years have done the like Toyota production system, you know, lean continuous improvement stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the big principles in that world is for the leaders to actually go and go and actually be present where the work is getting done. The Japanese call it going to Gemba. Okay. Hmm. And it's interesting because it like, it helps you relate and see the real problems and it helps you actually trust the people who are closest to the problem to make decisions instead of like sit at our boardroom tables and think that we're so smart. Right. Um, But what I hadn't thought about in nonprofit is is the reinvigoration aspect of it for those people who maybe as the organization has got bigger, you know, have been more on the administrative side of things. Right. Like, you know, we've run our charity for a little over 10 years now. And I think about about six years in, I went and spent a week um, down in Central America at one of the aftercare facilities and was involved with some stuff down there and it was like, I was like brought to the cause all over again. You know, we'd been doing a lot of stuff here in the States, but just, um, that, that kind of 10 days where I was doing it full time in that. And it was, it was, uh, quite a bit more extreme where I was in Nicaragua. And I did come home with like a complete new fire in the belly. It was almost like I was starting over, like, you know, um, so anyways, I really liked your answer there. And I I think that's maybe a, a lesson for the rest of us of, you know, when is the last time, that we were, you know, if we are in leadership or at the top of the food chain there, when's the last time that we were, you know, down on the front lines? Yeah, exactly. And I think for us, it's the two things. One on the the East
0: African side, our admin staff, they're I mean, they're a 30-minute drive from our projects, but they even they even miss it sometimes. They get disconnected. So most all of our admin staff is expected to spend at least one day a month in the field. One, to cultivate empathy and compassion, but two, obviously, to understand what's actually happening and how can we do our work better. But then one of the big investments we make in Kenya every year, or if you're in a position that's not regularly going East Africa, we're going to send you once a year. And, and that's a big, big investment, but in terms of keeping people engaged and focused, um, it's, it's some of the best money we spend.
1: Yeah, I can see that. You know, it's interesting how that doesn't, you know, how that can apply no matter what we're doing. I think about one of our big clients was, uh, was the Utah transit authority here at the, Mm -hmm. over Greystock advisors. And, um, you know, I was working with their chief operating officer at the time. He's got maybe 1800 employees and they're busy fixing the brakes on the trains and, you know doing doing so many things oftentimes that are not in contact with their customer and mm. i was just so excited to see them do things like they went and made videos of this disabled guy who had no other transportation to potentially have employment other than the public transit and mm. just he was a super friendly guy who made friends with all the regulars on his on his bus you know <laughs> yeah um, but to really get this like instead of just hearing about it getting to see the fact that this guy really would be pretty much stuck at home and how much like quality of life he got because these trains are running, these buses are running and he can actually afford it on his really, really modest income, you know? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, like, I can see in their organization, I I could really get this feeling of like, Oh, I guess our job actually does matter. Like, it's not just, it's not just to check a box. It's not just to make money. This actually matters to humans. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Anyways, I feel like it's a principle we could probably all apply no matter what we're doing, huh? Yeah, I agree. Well, talking about this idea of of helping your folks continue to have the passion, helping keep the fire alive, helping um, them not get disconnected, you, talk about, you talked about a couple of things you did there. Um, when you think about leadership in general, what do you feel like is some of the best advice you've ever been given?
0: Mm. Oh, man. Um, so there's a number of things. I mean, for me... The I think one of the pieces of advice that I, I cling to a lot, especially in our world where we can sometimes as an organization, you know, can idolize growth as an organization. I think for me one of the big lessons I had to to continue to remind myself of is that 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 my focus as the leader should be to help focus on, are we being the absolute best steward of the people and resources that we have right now and the programs that we're running? And are we doing them to the highest measure of effectiveness? And if we're doing that well, and we're stewarding our donors well, those are things that are going to produce growth in the organization. And if you just are chasing after growth, ultimately all of that other stuff is going to cause the organization to be very weak and that growth is not gonna be sustained. So I think for me, like I have, I've had to change my focus at times and, and not focus on just how do we grow, but how do we make our organization as strong and as create the greatest impact possible. Um, yeah, that's that's a something that I've had to, to I think is a mentality shift for me.
1: Well, I, I I do. I like this more holistic approach, this kind of, you know, not thinking about one thing at the expense of everything else. Right. Um, like I'm looking at your 2018 impact report, and I think so many folks, when they hear about people like you, they're thinking very much, at least I was thinking about the physical benefits of of you helping all these clients of yours. Right. Um, something that I I didn't expect that I was actually really impressed by was the work you've done on their economic health. Like I'm looking at this, you know, 32% of clients were in a savings group when they came at the intake time and 96% of them were in, were in a savings group at their exit time. Can you talk about that and, and other ways you're helping them with their economic health?
0: Yeah, I mean, all of this, the work that we're doing ultimately... It, it somewhat rests on the, the sustainability of their health and their community. A lot of this will depend on whether or not they have the economic means to provide for themselves. And so when they come into our program, we're, one, we're giving them the option to join a savings group. And we have a partner organization who specializes in savings groups that help that's helped us create our curriculum to train them on how to operate a savings group. But then for the rest of the clients, even whether they choose a savings group or not, they are going to get 18 training seminars over the course of the program where they're going to be learning some skills of, of entrepreneurship and business where they're learning about how to manage their their finances and how to, to learn marketing and design thinking. But they're also going to be learning some tangible skills that we've identified for their community that could be valuable for them. So if it's uh, that they could actually use to start a business. So they could be learning how to make uh, some different types of food, food products, like baking cakes or making yogurt, or they could be making some type of clothing item or accessory that would be marketable in their context. And so we hope that everybody has identified at least one or two skills when they exit the program that they can, they can save capital, hopefully with a group, uh, they can use that capital to invest in any type of of raw materials they need for their business, and then they can start a small um, shop in their community and for for most of our clients that's that's the outcome that we hope for um, when it comes to their economic sustainability and and for everybody, for anybody who doesn't know, can you
1: describe a savings group
0: yeah it's just it's a beautiful i mean model of a group of people coming together contributing an agreed upon amount of resources on a weekly or monthly basis and that money being pooled together and then members of that group uh, applying to that group to receive a loan from the other members and they still repay that loan with a small amount of interest but it's usually about 5 or 10% which is is a far cry from what most lenders are going to offer them in that context so there are other types of savings groups where the money is pooled and then a different member gets that lump sum of money each time that's a more simple form of it but basically it's just access to low interest capital that for most people in these contexts is not available unless they pull together in a small group
1: well i i love that and i want to i want to hear more about this any lessons you've learned in helping people you know take control of their own futures become entrepreneurs instead of just waiting for somebody else to give them a job you know that group in Nicaragua I was talking about w- was one of the other charities we partnered with. They're called Breaking Chains. I've got so much respect for them. They're in San Diego. Everybody should donate to them. But, you know, they ran these aftercare facilities and um, especially with the adult victims of trafficking, they they were telling me about lessons they'd learned where at first they were teaching them general entrepreneurship skills and the, <laughs> the businesses weren't sticking around. So then later on, they're like, okay, you can start one of these five businesses, you know, we'll help you start a hair business. We'll help you start a nails business. We'll help you start a, it's like a mini Seven Eleven in the front of their house. I can't remember what they call them, but it's like, you know, where they sell like one, one meal worth of rice kind of stuff. Right. And they, they narrow it down to, okay, we know how to teach these five kind of businesses where they'll actually still be in business years later kind of thing. Um, Is it anything similar for you guys or what did, what did you discover over this time of trying to help them, you know, build their own jobs instead of waiting for one?
0: Yeah, well, for many of our clients, as you know, this this is one of the few options they have. Unfortunately, a lot of our clients would prefer to be employed by somebody. And we're maybe talking more and more about can we teach more soft skills to help them be more employable by other, but the reality of it is those those opportunities are just not available in the context where we work. So to your point, we're always looking at what are, you know, what are the greatest barriers for them to them start their own business. Um, some of that's accessing capital, which is why we hope they will take advantage of a savings group. We've also learned over time that a lot of our Male clients in particular, which is a a group we're specifically passionate about serving more men with HIV, because that's one of the things we need to focus on in order to curb the spread of this disease. But we have created a whole separate track of skills that men are are more attracted to. Um, And then there are some cases where um, men in our program are able to access a scholarship to do some skills that we're not equipped to teach in our program, like getting a driver's license or... Um, learning how to be a mechanic and things uh, like that. And so we're trying to do things. The women in our program are very attracted to these skills, like making soap and clothes and food and stuff like that. But we had trouble translating this to men as well. So we're still um, trying to understand, you know, a lot of these clients are very, and they're obviously extremely resourceful and it's hard to kind of track their, business success over time because they're going to probably practice a number of these different skills and they're going to create a lot of different products and they're going to sell them as, as there's an opportunity to do so. So in terms of tracking like long-term business sustainability and health of our clients, it's an area that we're still like learning how to measure over time, but our clients consistently graduate the program and say, I love the counseling. I love the, the, the food and all that stuff, but like the economic empowerment piece of it is the part that had the greatest impact on my
1: life. Well, you think about how much hope it brings when you think you're going to be able to provide, right? Exactly.
0: Yeah. They, they're not looking for somebody to just give them a handout. I mean, in many cases they've been conditioned to think that because that's what's been done. But if you give them an opportunity to show you have the ability to create something of, of value, that's beautiful you can use to provide for your family our clients are eager to be a part
1: of that i love it well listen everybody we should all go buy justin's book either on beyond blood it's on amazon it's on justintmiller.com it's on careforaids.org uh justin this is great work you're doing we're happy there's people like you in the world doing this um maybe uh maybe for closing um what's a question that when you do interviews like this and stuff, what's a question that you don't get asked as much as you would like, or what, what's a question you wish people would ask more? Mm-hmm.
0: What's the, that's a good one. Uh, man, that, I guess I would say, um, what, hmm, I guess maybe I don't get asked enough about like, what is, what is, how do you just like, how do you understand like why you're here? What's your purpose is? Hmm. Um, because for me, I just, uh, maybe that's, I probably have been asked that before, but I just think it's for me, I mean, this, I think maybe it's fitting since this podcast is about leadership, but just to say that, uh, you know, I, I really believe that the only type of leadership that's really worth practicing is one that is about adding value or serving other people. And for me to be able to, to use my gifts of leadership as a way to help add value to the clients that we serve and to our donors that we serve, you know, and, and having a whole life mission, not just about my work, but it's about how am I being a net giver in my life as opposed to a net taker that is ultimately part of just how I live my life. And so I think for me, that would be the thing that I would want to just leave people with.
1: I love it. Well, thanks for making time for this. This was great. Keep up the good work, man.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Jess. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah.